0: use uh, sermon slides and stuff like that um, we might actually put this up if that's okay then um, unless you want the slides just because that'll give me a bit more room to move around and i uh, i'm not very good at standing still so don't worry, don't worry about the slides if you're used to not having them that's fine So, yeah, although I don't actually know you, I'm very comforted that the God who wrote His Word that we're going to open this morning knows each of you individually, knows what you need, knows what you need to hear at this time. And so His Word uh, impacts us in those sort of ways. And I have great confidence that God can and will do that because that's what we pray for. Uh, And so I thank you for your prayers for that. Um, We're good? Excellent. Uh, so, So the professor of my pastoral ministry course... Uh, tells the story about how he one day had to come and mediate between uh, a local pastor and his church. Uh, He wasn't from a big church, uh, and he was the only pastor. And in time, uh, there had been, uh, I guess, a rising level of frustration at the pastor. Am I standing in the light there? Uh, I'll stand aside for a second. A rising level of frustration at the pastor about the things that he was either unable to do or unwilling to do. Uh, So this pastor, this uh, professor was a really warm, godly man, the sort of guy uh, built for that sort of a task. And so he held a congregational meeting at this church and they got a whiteboard up the front and a list of all the different things the congregation thought their pastor should be doing. And then next to that, they wrote a list of how long they expected each of these different things would take. Even with an unrealistically short time frame uh, on some of those items, can you uh, imagine how long it would take the pastor to do all those things from memory it was upwards of 60 and getting a lot closer to 70 hours a week when you can do everything that you want to do you don't need to set priorities but if you can, then you have to do what's essential and so that church had some thinking to do about what was essential for their pastor and why? But of course that question uh, doesn't just hit pastors, does it? Because I'm guessing that many of you guys out here today also have that stress of I've not being able to do everything in your life. life. Let alone actually finding the time to think through what is important and what's essential and making changes according to that. I'm not sure if you've seen the book that Kevin DeYoung wrote called Crazy Busy, but in it he suggests that one of the reasons we're busy is because we're not really clear on our priorities. We instead live with a set of de facto priorities or de facto mission. Uh, And so this is the three things he thinks we do. Our de facto mission is to take care of the house, to meet the next deadline and to keep the people in our life relatively happy. It's it's somewhat unnervingly diagnostic, isn't it? There's a sense that there's a lot of good things that we really want to do, but we don't seem to get to them. It's not that those things would be the things we would say are our priorities. But as life presses in and things get squeezed out, that's just kind of the default place about where we land. So this morning we have this opportunity to open God's Word and to rethink and to reset some of the things we hold dear. We're going to see the early church face uh, pressures of expansion and pressures of what they need to do and what's important. And as we do, we're going to have a chance to explore what is important and what is essential for a church. What's essential for church leaders? And what's essential for the individuals that make up the church? These are questions worth asking. Because what we get to see is a, a Christian life live with a, a far greater purpose than just grinding through our days on Earth, meeting the next deadline. What impact is it that you want to leave with your life? What lasting legacy? There is energy. There is joy and there's actually rest to be found in perspective and purpose. And so as we open God's word this morning, I invite you to do, to humbly look at it and to look at what the early church is doing as it wrestles with these things to set its priorities and then to be humbly prepared to adjust our own. Now, if you find yourself here this morning as a person who's not completely convinced about Jesus yet, I invite you to think through why these things are important. And why it would be so significant that they would adjust their lives around these particular priorities. So let's start today uh, looking at our first thing. Look at the tension that raises the question. I invite you to open your Bibles back up to Acts chapter 6 and I'll read from verse 1. In those days the number of the disciples was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews uh, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So which days are these? Uh, We often often talk about our glory days, our our past football days or our youth days or some other glory days that we have. What what days is in view here? Well, just pop back up to the previous verse, noting that uh, the text headings and the verses aren't original. They're useful, but they're not original. And so we read this in verse 42 of chapter 5. Day after day, In the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, As you you track through the book of Acts, the, the number of disciples is increasing dramatically because the message of the risen Lord Jesus is being proclaimed constantly. In public and in private, the proclamation doesn't stop. And that comes with this huge gospel growth that's going on, which is fantastic and worth rejoicing in, but it doesn't come without its problems. Uh, something has changed from Acts chapter 4, verse 35, where everyone, uh, God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all that there were no needy persons among them. But something has changed. This, this rapid rise has led to other pressures. And so, Luke. Uh, reports them to us as life is, as the whole Bible does, as life is, not as we wish that life was. Because needs have begun to outstrip administration. People that were formerly looked after are beginning to get left behind and widows are especially vulnerable. There's no uh, superannuation plans in the ancient world for, for widows who don't have children to look after them. There's not even the meagre pension that we have uh, today, where people are looked after, they're especially vulnerable. And there's a particular group, that the Hellenistic ones, which is intriguing given our venue here today. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews, the ones who spoke Greek, uh, which is the language of the world around them, they're from outside of Jerusalem. Probably the ones that are hearing uh, Peter in their own language at Pentecost. They seem to be getting left behind in favour of the Hebraic Jews who are local and speak the local dialect. There's uh, cultural things that are raising tensions there as well and it threatens to tear the church apart. And so these complaints are beginning to be raised uh, and it was the apostles up until now who have dealt with this stuff. And so the complaints are actually coming as a, as a frustration or a questioning of the apostles' leadership of the church because they're the ones in charge. And so it's, uh, the implication in the passage is that the proclamation of the gospel itself is threatened to be stalled and as a result the resulting growth of the church as well so there's a there's a lot at stake here and so what do the apostles do they call everyone together verse 2 so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables brothers and sisters choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles affirm both their desire for the ministry of care to flourish and their God-given responsibility for the proclamation of God's word. We'll look at both of those priorities in turn uh, shortly, but for now let's just appreciate the humility and the wisdom associated with what is going on. These needs have caused the church to rethink their priorities. And as a result, they've shown a willingness to change so that they can care for people's needs and continue to proclaim the gospel. Now we know, don't we, both as individuals and, and as churches, and I'm guessing this is true of your church, it's true of every other church you have been in, that change is hard. It's not natural to want to change. It's far more natural for us to continue to do what we've always been doing. Rolling on through those de facto priorities that we have in life. And we just continue on in that until relationships break. Or we have a breakdown. Or the gospel gets totally left behind in the process. Are we willing to have a humble view of our lives like the early church is? Are we people that are willing to change for the sake of the gospel? Because what we see here is a dramatic turnaround as a result of that sort of humility where the word uh, was threatening to get choked out with all the other stuff going on. All of a sudden it begins to flourish again, perhaps even more than before. These conflicts we get into and the pressures we face give us a reason to stop and to think and to reflect. Conflict is a chance to clarify the gospel. And so when you get that opportunity, I invite you to stop, to humbly place yourself under God's word and allow it to shape what really happens next. So that's our first point. The second point today is the priority of care for the community. This is the the one that causes the tension. Up until now, the church has been dramatically unified. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, this church that has everything in common. They're sharing meals together. They're selling fields and they're sharing possessions. It's all going together in common. It's one of the few high points in the biblical storyline where the scriptural responsibility for care for the poor and the needy is actually taking place. They're taking it seriously. And so the, the care for others, this idea of waiting on tables, is not a, it's not a lesser role. Although, although it kind of sounds like that as you read the, t- the text for a first time, it's not a lesser role. It's just something that the apostles cannot do well anymore. They could easily say, "Ah, don't worry about it. Uh, Physical needs don't really matter anymore. Evangelism is all that matters. And you may have come across churches who act like that in practice. But the disciples, however, do not. Because they are convinced that this care is so important. They set aside people and well-trained people with spiritual wisdom and knowledge and faith to be able to lead this ministry so that it could continue. We see this in verse 5, as as we open back up. So in verse 5, we read this. Now, this proposal pleased the whole group. So they choose Stephen, a man, again, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So it wasn't right for the apostles to wait on tables. But there's a wordplay going on here where it suggests that it is right, that's pleasing, uh, to set aside other people to do it. The church endorses both this priority of care and the priority of this ministry of the word. Those two things go together. And Luke uh, doesn't even try to disguise the fact that the two men of this list of seven that we see again have significant gospel proclamation roles. Stephen, where he gives his life as a witness in the next chapter, in chapter seven, and then Philip as an evangelist to Uh, a whole heap of people in Samaria and then even an Ethiopian in chapter 8. This idea of providing service or care for others doesn't give you an excuse out of the gospel proclamation stuff, but it actually serves to increase it and to promote it. Uh, In the Love of God documentary, uh, Rodney Stark notes that it's the Christian community that actually played a significant role in the growth of the early church. He says this, in a world that had no social services, a world that had many slaves and very poor people. Here was an organisation that took care of one another, which in a sense provided social services that weren't there for anyone else. You see what's happening? People are getting a glimpse of God's kingdom. They're seeing what it looks like to be under Jesus' rule. So this looking after and care for one another serves to reinforce the gospel because of the reason that it is done. It puts into practice what Jesus himself expects. Think back to John chapter 13 verse 35. Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. That world changing love isn't coming because these seven are uniquely special but it comes from Jesus himself and it impacts the whole church. The whole church is involved in selling fields or giving gifts or giving time or giving compassion and they bring it to these seven who then distribute it to those who are in need.
1: Now this isn't
0: so much an introduction of deacons, the church hasn't grown to a stage where they where they've met that point yet but you can tell here by the leadership that's exercised by the fact that care is a significant priority and the fact that there are spiritual qualifications involved uh, you can see where this idea of deacons grows from and it it looks very similar to here now I'm going to let your own local church to, to teach you about deacons and what it looks like among you But I do want to encourage you to think through how the gospel changes the way we think about and care for the people that are around us. Uh, The legacy of the early church and and Christians in general over the centuries has meant that our society has adopted this caring thing where there's a lot of services around that are doing really good stuff. And it's kind of tempting for us, isn't it, to think think as if that work is taken care of, and it's no longer our responsibility. That we can just uh, keep going on in our in our overcluttered lives, and we don't have to worry about that sort of stuff because the care is taken care of. But you cannot truly understand the gospel and remain unmoved by the needs of those around you and the possibilities for the gospel that that includes. This is what Paul is getting at when he writes in uh, Philippians chapter 2, these words in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Why? Because that is what Jesus did for us. Jesus could have enjoyed all the privileges and comforts of heaven. Like, I'm sure it was great there. But he came to earth and became human. He experienced humanity in all the different ways and pressures that we do. And then he suffered a a terrible death on a cross. And he did that for your benefit. He's dramatically selfless in that regard. Jesus is relentlessly outward looking. That's what he is like. And so the gospel changes our eyes and turns our eyes from looking at ourselves to looking at Jesus. And through looking at Jesus, then we look to the physical and the spiritual needs of others. The gospel shapes how we think about other people. The gospel also shapes how we think about ourselves and gives us the humility to be able to accept care from others. Because I'm guessing that most of you are like me and it's far easier to offer help to people than it is to receive help yourself. But again, the gospel doesn't give us the freedom of that sort of pride. Jesus doesn't love us because we have everything together. In fact, he loved us when we didn't. Admitting that we need help is central to the message of the gospel and us coming to appreciate it and know it. It's okay to ask for help. You don't have to prove yourself uh, to Jesus and you don't have to prove yourself to his people. God has given us the church to take care of one another's spiritual and physical needs. And to set that as a priority. And it's exciting to watch you guys do that for some of the believers in Pakistan as well. So let's take seriously this priority of care to look after other people's needs as well as our own. Uh, next, the priority of prayer and the ministry of the word. Uh, these are the two, uh, these are the twin priorities that the disciples considered essential. There was no way they were going to miss out on them. This was very important for them. And so freeing up the seven allowed them to spend the time in prayer and in quite literally in the service of the word as opposed to the service of tables. It's important for what they wanted to do. And this has the full support of the early church. They're not frustrated by this. They rejoice in it because they themselves are devoted to the apostles teaching and to prayer if you read Acts 2 verse 42 they're about the same thing even with the tension of meeting the needs of the community and the frustrations to, to lose the proclamation of the word and prayer or to even see it decrease is unthinkable to the early church and I think uh, for us it's quite helpful that prayer is listed first throughout the, the book of Acts it's the word of God that is shown to be the powerful means for converting people and growing churches. But it's prayer that makes all of that possible. Because it's in prayer we express our dependence on God to act and ask God to bring things like boldness for speaking. This is the things they're praying about in the early church. Boldness for speaking. Protection for those who are proclaiming the word. For opportunities for people to hear and for people to come to faith, as we see in our reading in verse 7. So during sermon preparation, I often stop and pray, sometimes in desperation. um, But stop and pray that God would guide me by his spirit and give me the wisdom I need for that task so that I would be choosing words that serve you as his people. One of the real humbling things about being a pastor then is when I hear that other people in our church community are joining me in those same prayers because it is prayer that makes the proclamation of the word effective in its many forms whether that's up the front here with preaching, whether that's leading in uh, Bible study groups, whether that's reading the Bible on your own or whether that's chatting to one another about the Bible stuff. It is prayer that makes that word effective and that is something that you can all join in on. Don't miss the priority of prayer. It is something that is vitally important. And what we long for in prayer is exactly what we see in this passage, isn't it? As you read verse 7, that's what we we want to see. That's why we pray, that the word of God would spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Luke's language suggests that he may actually have the parable of the the sower that he wrote back in Luke chapter 8 in mind. This freedom for the apostles to set aside time for prayer and the ministry of the word means that a lot more seed is being scattered and it's taking root, it's growing and then it's multiplying this great big harvest as the numbers are expanding rapidly. Even to the point that some of the uh, priests, uh, those who have previously led the opposition to the church are now being converted in a sign that God can get to everyone that no one is outside of his reach. Thus is the power of prayer. And that prayerful ministry of the word isn't just effective in the book of Acts. I am absolutely convinced, and we should all be convinced, that it remains effective today. There is no greater priority that we could set in my life, or in your life, or in this church, than the prayerful proclamation of God's word couple of interesting things came out of that time my professor spent with the church Uh, one of those is they expected that the the preaching preparation would take between four and five hours Uh, the second was their expectation that the pastor would pray for them as we look at the the chapters of uh, acts that we've been looking at here how do you feel about those outcomes and would those things be satisfactory to you as a church I mean, the prayer is good. I encourage you to, to, to nudge your leaders to pray for you. It's an important thing for them to be doing. The first, however, the four to five hours, suggests that there's a priority in a whole lot of other things outside of the prayerful ministry of the Word and the preparation of it. Now, how long a sermon takes is dependent on a whole lot of different factors. But it should reflect the non-negotiable central importance of the proclamation of the word. And it should have a significant investment of prayer to go along with that. So that's prayer and the ministry of the word. And then finally, uh, disciples need to set priorities. Uh, The proclamation of God's word means that a whole number of priests become obedient to the faith. And obedience to Jesus' commands has always been part of what it means to be a disciple, isn't it? That's obedience both to the content of what he teaches, but also the lifestyle that that obedience demands and what that teaching demands. And that is true of every believer. Even if you're not, like me, in paid ministry, the priority of prayer, of the ministry of the word, and the ministry of the service are for the church, they're for the lives of every believer. as we reflect on the early church, don't we see with what happens that these priorities become increasingly attractive? There's really good stuff going on that we would love to have going on here in Hobart and in Kingston and that makes these priorities uh, rather more attractive than what they might otherwise be. So are you satisfied with where you stand as a church with these priorities? Have you joined Jesus on his mission as he sends out the disciples and then us following that as well? Uh, Now, if you were to wander around the foyer of our church, uh, like Paul did in Athens many, many years ago, uh, you would have found uh, 25 copies of this book outgrowing the ingrown church. Uh, You'd be forced to conclude that there was some stage in our church's life where this book was really important. Uh, This book, the idea behind it, if you read the blurb on the back, aims to help churches to break free of the things that would turn them in on themselves and keep them from being the outward looking and outward moving communities of Jesus Christ. Now, because I was somewhat tired of having them on the bookshelf in our church, uh, we gave away 23 copies of them after I preached this sermon two weeks ago. Uh, In part because as a church, we haven't yet outgrown this stuff. And I wonder if you guys have too if you've outgrown the sentiment of this book or if you still find yourselves in it. Uh, One of the the definitions of sin uh, used by Augustine and Luther is that sin is self-curved inwards. The natural trajectory of a life marred by sin is towards one of self-importance, self-preservation and self-interest. It turns our lives and our priorities and our calendars in on themselves. Church uh, turned inwards will be the natural trajectory. Families turned inwards will be the natural trajectory. And individuals turned inwards will be the natural trajectory. We are people who constantly need to hear the gospel. That Jesus in the most selfless act of history came and died on the cross to break the power of sin. That you and I would turn from our selfishness, that we would outgrow our inwardness and in turn Submit and follow to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ who welcomed us into his kingdom. We need uh, the proclamation of God's order. We need God's word to constantly shape our priorities according to those of the kingdom and its king. These priorities of prayer and the service of the word and the service of others. Because these are priorities for every disciple. Now if you see a a standard archery bow, if if it's unstrung, it kind of points inwards. It's relatively useless. What you need is the string to pull it back in the other direction so that it points outwards and can do some real damage. My intention this morning is not to load you down with guilt and more busy things as we think through these gospel priorities. But to actually ask the question, are all the inward-facing things that you do as a church and as families and as individuals necessary? Or do they just choke out what is truly essential? Can some of them be pulled back the other direction so that they can have a priority and a purpose that they've never had before? So, for example, let's take uh, the sentiment I hear hear somewhat regularly that uh, kids are our first mission field, which is absolutely true. But the way it's said sometimes suggests there's an unspoken tension between being wholeheartedly set out about these gospel priorities and passing the faith on to our kids. That there's somehow a tension between being on mission together with Jesus and being on mission to our family. Feel this tension somehow that isn't actually there. Uh, This idea, uh, because we care so much about our kids and we fear losing them to the gospel. We feel this need to somehow protect them from its costs. But let me tell you, that threatens to be an inward curve. You cannot protect someone into living faith. How much better would it be for our kids to be part of the mission of the church? not somehow a substitute for it. For them to experience what it means to be part of this stuff, especially considering that given what we have read today with the power of the proclamation of the word, isn't it far more plausible that kids being joined in on the mission of the church convinces them that that is something that's important? And they actually love Jesus more because of it. So let me urge you, let your kids see the gospel be a priority for you and for those around you. Not for some peripheral thing that can become crowded out by other stuff. Let them see why it matters that they believe and that those around them believe as well. That's the priority. As, uh, as families in our church at the moment, I've been recently encouraged have been thinking about these things and um, trying to find ways to bend the curve outwards. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a family approached me. They wanted to uh, join in our English Hub ministry. It's a, it's a lang- uh, English conversation ministry to international people. It's a, the commitment is not huge, it's one Sunday afternoon a term, a couple of hours. But if passing the faith on to your kids is a priority, what a great thing to do as a family. That they can be part of and see that and to be doing that together. How good would it be for our kids to grow up and not see these gospel priorities as an inconvenience to the things we really want to be doing in our lives? but actually as something normal in the Christian life, that this is what we live for. Now, I'll be honest, there's not a time coming soon where these gospel priorities fit neatly into your calendar and you have time for them. Because priorities don't work like that, do they? They fit because they are essential. And if they're essential, that's when we make room for them. So set them as priorities for the sake of your family, for the sake of the mission of this church, and for the sake of the mission of Jesus' kingdom, which is far bigger than both those things. Uh, another place uh, our priorities can bend outwards is in our prayers. And so often, isn't it, that the content of our prayers gives away our priorities? Uh, if all of your prayers are about, about your family, uh, about health, about circumstances or about decisions that you're trying to make, it's possible that your prayers have bent at least a little bit inwards. Um, recently I've been convicted of this very same thing about the prayers uh, in our family and it, uh, as, a, as a small measure of correcting that, I grabbed a copy of Operation World off the bookshelf in my office. It's a, it's a prayer guide to all the nations of the world and I, I dumped it in the kids' bedroom. And so every night before we, go to bed, before we put the kids to bed now, we open up and, and read, a, read a page and perhaps point to a, a place on a map and, me and, and the kids and, I, and us pray uh, for the different countries around the world. So it's not a big thing. It takes, it takes all of five minutes. But it sets uh, for us and for our kids a priority of the gospel, not just for them, but around the world. And as an encouragement, uh, we are talking about Pakistan here earlier. My six-year-old daughter talked to me, we've just been praying for Pakistan last week, haven't we? Um, the, the conversations we've had out of that have been super encouraging. It takes five minutes. It's not, a, it's not a big thing, but just little things to, again, bend the curve outwards. So how much do you as a church long for the word of God to spread? We need God's word, don't we? We need it to to hold it as a mirror to our lives so we can readjust ourselves according to the gospel and the priorities that it demands. Don't settle for a life that has its priorities dictated to it. If Jesus truly is the risen Lord, then he is worth following wholeheartedly. Commit to these gospel priorities for your lives and work for them, for your church, because you know that your labour in them will not be in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you uh, for this community of your believers that you've brought together here uh, this morning uh, and in this church. I thank you that you know them intimately, you know their families, you know their pressures, you know their lives, their hopes and their dreams. Our Father, I thank you for the good news of the Gospel. Please don't let us lose sight of that. Lose sight of that. what that means for us as it helps us outgrow our inwardness, but also for the world as that message spreads and that the risen King, you, yourself, Receive the glory and adoration that you deserve. Please set our hearts to these things, I pray. Prayer, ministry of your word, the care of others. And please grow your kingdom because of that, for the sake of your glory. Amen.